RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 381, Children of Time. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take our time looking back in time at the time spent by each crew on Star Trek exploring their own morals and ethical dilemmas. This week, Children of Time, a story in which the DS9 crew meet their great, 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 great grandchildren and then try to figure out if they should wipe them out of existence. I'll have trivia for you in a moment, but first, Norman will tell you how to reach us. And I will try and get through this as quickly as possible because we don't have the time, and it's no time to make jokes about time. I thought we had all the time in the world. What was I saying? (laughs) (laughs) Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Your reviews at Apple Podcasts help other people find the show, and we do appreciate it. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We have all the trivia in the world (laughs) with John Champion. I'll get to it. Thank you. So trivia for Children of Time. Uh, We have here a story by Gary Holland and Ethan H. Kalk. Now, this is a really interesting way to develop a story. Gary was actually on the lot already since he was an advertising and promotions executive at Paramount. He had been watching DS9, and way back in season two, he had sold the story and wrote the teleplay for The Collaborator. Ever since, he was intrigued by the idea of something developing between Odo and Kira. What he pitched, though, was too early in the series, it was felt. So Ira Stephen Bear sat on it. Meanwhile, Ethan Kalk, who was a schoolteacher in Texas, had his own story pitch independent of this one, but it was very similar to Gary's. So what to do? Both stories were purchased and both writers were credited, even though they didn't work together at all in the process. In fact, they were both given five days to write their story drafts, and then the producers decided what they liked. So this is kind of like everyone tossing around story ideas for Star Trek II, but then the final story and script had to be assembled by Nick Meyer. In this case, it was DS9 writer-producer Rene Echeverria who put those pieces together, and that's why he gets teleplay credit here. It was directed by Alan Croker, and we've only really just started to see Alan's name here on DS9, uh, though he was simultaneously directing on Voyager 
and he will really take the crown as the finale king of Star Trek as the series progress. So far, we've covered his work this season with The Assignment and The Ascent. So there's a good amount of location footage on this episode. They shot out near Ventura and Amason Ranch. You'd need to drive more than an hour northwest of L.A. to get there. They had a very difficult time of it all. Weather did not cooperate. It was cold and windy, and they had to shoot the big planting scene essentially backwards in order to get the best lighting for the big group shots. And as it got later, they filmed the close-ups, and the crew were all in winter coats while the actors were sprayed with water to make it look like they were sweating. Oh, oh, and I love this bit of trivia, uh, that the stasis chamber on board the Defiant, that, that's the device that uh, Dr. Bashir sort of pours Odo into to leave him there for a bit. I, it's a bread maker. They, they just they took an off-the-shelf bread maker and put some lights on it and some uh, graphics, and boom, now it's the stasis chamber. Let's talk about guest stars, tons of guest players in this one, and uh, we'll focus on a few of them. Three young people that we meet are Gabriel, Molly, and Lisa. Gabriel is played by Jesse Littlejohn, whose TV appearances start in the mid-90s with ER. And by the end of the 90s and early 2000s, he was racking up a few film and indie credits. Molly is played by Doran Fine, an actor who had recurring roles on Days of Our Lives and even Beverly Hills 90210. Lisa is played by DeVito Williams, who's been working almost nonstop since she was about six years old. She has soap opera credits, TV guest, and independent film titles to her name, though she may be best known to some audiences for a big recurring role on Lizzie McGuire. We also spend time with three Klingon-ish characters. One of them, uncredited, is played by David R. Mayer, and while he has some acting credits, he's also an artist, and he has some really intriguing paper crafts up on his site, EduCraft Diversions. Then we've got Brian Chandler as Brota, and he has a few other credits, including Brother to Brother and Phil of the Future. Then there's Mary Beth Massette, who is playing Perel. This marks her first professional credit in front of the camera. But Mary Beth also works as a producer, and she even had a role in the feature film The Social Network. While this is her only Trek appearance, she does have another Klingon in her life. She's married to Patrick Massette, who played Duras in TNG in Sins of the Father and Reunion. Jennifer Parsons plays Miranda O'Brien, one of the chief's descendants. This is the first time we're seeing her on track, but technically she had a bit part earlier in the Voyager pilot, so we'll uh, try to point her out when we get there in a while. This isn't her first sci-fi cred, though. If you go back to those heady days of 1982, she appeared on both The Phoenix and The Powers of Matthew Starr. In addition to her many TV guest roles, like a lot of them on Murder One, Jennifer also appears in the Drew Barrymore feature film Never Been Kissed. And finally, the newest and oldest Dax that we meet is Yedrin, played by Gary Frank. In the 1970s, Gary picked up an Emmy when he was co-starring on the popular drama Family. Through the 80s and 90s, he made a ton of TV guest appearances and recurring roles on shows from Hill Street Blues to Remington Steel. He even did 
three turns on the love boat, this is his only Star Trek appearance. And now Norman will bring us up to speed on what happens when explorers in space meet the children of time. Prologue. The Defiant and her crew are returning home to Deep Space Nine after a week-long recon mission in the Gamma Quadrant. At breakfast, Dax laments the less-than-comfortable bunks, to which Kira adds that she could use a visit to the Golian Spa. Kira also confesses that she and Shakar aren't seeing each other anymore, which disquiets Odo, as he curtly says he has no opinion on the subject and hastily leaves the mess hall. Later on the bridge, Captain Sisko declines being offered a Rakdagino, saying that he's trying to cut down, as the chief worries aloud about not having enough time to finish Molly's birthday dollhouse. Dax receives some unusual readings from a nearby solar system, and Kira adds that there could be lifeforms on the surface of the fourth planet. Strongly insisting on surveying these readings, Dax assures Benjamin that with a few shield modifications, approaching the planet would be smooth sailing. However, as the Defiant enters the planet's quantum barrier, the bridge surges with energy, causing Kira to be struck by an electrical discharge, which briefly phases her in two. Kira assures Sisko that she's all right, as the chief reports that the Defiant will need major repairs and is grounded for the time being. Suddenly, the Defiant is hailed, and Sisko and the crew are stunned to see a human female and a trill male who address Captain Sisko by name and invite him, Dax, Worf, and O'Brien to meet with them on the surface. The two strangers introduce themselves as Miranda O'Brien and Yedrin Dax, descendants of the Defiant that crash-landed on this planet 200 years ago. Act 1. As Sisko and his crew are trying to get their bearings, Yedrin Dax asks Jadzia to scan him to prove he is telling her the truth, proof in the form of the Dax symbiote he is hosting. Miranda O'Brien is in fact a direct descendant of the chief and Ensign Rita Tannenbaum? As Miranda relates to Miles that he, like many others, accepted what happened and moved on. However, Yedrin Dax senses Sisko's doubt and assuages it quickly by almost telling everyone a secret that only old man Curzon Dax and Benjamin would know. As the group walks through what seems to be a village center, they observe two girls being taught math by Quark? Well, at least an interactive Quark teaching program. He was always good with numbers, Miranda quipped. Worf asks if they ever tried to send out a distress call, but Yedrin explained that Defiance accident took place 200 years before the discovery of the wormhole, and there was no one to contact. Yedrin also tells Sisko that weeks after the crash, Kira did in fact die from the effects of the energy discharge she suffered when approaching the planet. In order to save her, they would have to leave the planet and avoid the accident that caused them to crash 200 years ago. But if that happens, then this colony and this timeline would cease to exist, right? Well, it turns out that Yedrin Dax has a plan. He's been studying what happened to Kira, and that if he can replicate the quantum effect that created her quantum duplicate, he would be able to do the same to the Defiant as it leaves the planet, causing one to escape and one to replicate the accident, preserving the timeline. Everyone got that? Meanwhile, back on the Defiant, Kira is resting as Dr. Bashir places a full container of Odo in a stasis chamber, as the planet's quantum field is keeping him from shapeshifting, Odo is fine for the moment. Kira, however, needs immediate neural pathway treatment back on Deep Space Nine. As Dr. Bashir leaves to meet with his descendants, 
A familiar yet strange face greets Kira as she is resting. It is Odo, but unlike any version she's seen before. Familiar, more refined, and certainly more emotionally open to her than ever before, as he says that he loves her and has always loved her. Act 2. Kira admits that she never knew Odo's true feelings for her, but how could she? Odo admits that he did everything to hide his truth from her, to spare both of them what could have happened to their friendship if anything between them went wrong. And even though Odo has not seen Kira for over 200 years, all he wants to do, and all he is offering to do, is to spend what little time they have together on Gaia. Back in the settlement, Captain Sisko has his hands full with his descendants, quite literally, as Dax informs him that Yedrin's plan is going to work. Nearby, Worf and Dr. Bashir are surveying the town to make sure they are provided the supplies they need. Julian is thrilled and annoyingly prideful that his descendant is a doctor. Just then, a young boy, Gabriel, announces that the Klingons are here, as two humans and one faintly defined Klingon appear armed with spears and knives. They are the sons of Moog, Worf's descendants, either by blood or by choice, and have arrived to honor Worf's return. Worf honors them in kind by accepting that he will feast with them. On the Defiant, Jadzia and Yedrin are in engineering. As Yedrin reminisces about Jadzia's wedding, telling her that Worf is a good man, and that in time she will learn to handle him. Back in town, O'Brien is installing a new well pump as Bashir annoyingly prattles on about his descendant, the Doctor. And before Julian can start in on Miles about Rita Tannenbaum, the Chief curtly declares, I have a wife and kids back home. On a remote grassy hilltop, Kara finishes praying over her own grave, as Odo remarks that the prophets, if listening, might be very confused. Kara believes that everyone has one destiny, one path, and now technology is being used to change that. But Odo supports Yedrin's plan, because not only will it preserve this new timeline, it's the only way to save Kira and give the other Odo a chance at happiness. However, Jadzia has discovered something disturbing, as she shows her pad secretly to Benjamin. She's discovered that Yedrin's plan won't work, and that the accident and all that unfolded afterward will happen again, as it did 200 years ago, including Kira's death. Act 3. In the meeting hall, Jadzia stares at Yedrin intently and accusingly, reeling in the disbelief that the Dax symbiote betrayed her. But Yedrin Dax stands firm and believes that the 8,000 people who exist in the here and now, because of an accident 200 years ago, have the right to fight for their existence as much as the 48 crewmen aboard the Defiant, who are and will be their ancestors. But Sisko reminds Yedrin that this isn't about the philosophy of who lives and who dies, and certainly not open for interpretation when it comes to Kira's life versus the lives of the 8,000 who exist now. But Yedrin is ready to make that call, and he has been ready for 200 years, ever since Jadzia insisted that the Defiant investigate the planet and make this huge scientific discovery. And because of her rash decision, Dax has harbored the regret of what happened to Kira and to all of her friends for 200 years. Benjamin sympathizes with his old friend, but stands firm in his decision to return his crew to their own timeline and back to their families. As Kira and Worf watch several children play catch with each other, knowing that their destinies are about to change, Worf tells her not to blame herself, as they are all choosing to leave this planet for their own personal reasons. Young Gabriel walks amidst the village elders, feeling that something is amiss, as it is unusually quiet. Meanwhile, 
Worf is sitting next to a fire when the sons of Moog appear and explain to Worf how they have followed the warrior's code, so much so that they cannot bear to die a dishonorable death, one that will prevent them entrance into Stilvacor. They offer their lives and their weapons to Worf so that he may grant them an honorable death. But today is not a good day to die for them, as Worf will comfort them tomorrow. Odo finds Kira back at her, well, the other Kira's gravesite, who has come to a decision. The path of her prophets led her to this time, to this point, and in order to save 8,000 innocent lives, Kira is ready to sacrifice her own to history. Act 4. In the Defiance mess hall, Captain Sisko and his command crew are all stunned at Kira's decision. Julia insists that she must receive the proper medical treatment on Deep Space Nine or she will die. Dax reminds everyone that as soon as they leave the planet, 8,000 people will cease to exist. However, Kira decides to let the will of the prophets choose her fate. But the chief staunchly objects to her beliefs and would rather take his chances cheating fate and getting back to Keiko and Molly. The discussion reaches a point of boiling over as Captain Sisko, after hearing what everyone had to say, turns to Kira while telling all of them he's not even considering letting her sacrifice herself. Later in the town square, Jadzia and Worf are reflecting on what will become of their descendants. Meeting up with Captain Sisko, who is also taking one last look around, they are all surprised as Gabriel, the young boy, comes barreling through them from behind. He tells Sisko that it's planting time, and he's running to the fields. Shortly after, Sisko, Worf, and Jadzia bump into Yedrin, who explains to them that planting day brings everyone together and must be seen through, even on this day, the day that will change everything. As the Defiance crew and the settlers are hard at work plowing, fertilizing and planting, and watering, Miles delivers Sisko a status report. His descendant, Molly, who is working nearby, shames the chief into rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty. She's an O'Brien, all right. The farming joviality subsides for a moment as Worf escorts the sons of Moog to what they thought would be a battlefield to fight a common enemy. Worf says that the settlers are trying to plant their fields before the sun sets and that time is their enemy. Lessons learned and metaphors understood, the sons of Moog add their strength to the fight. As the chief helps Molly with her planting, he tells her that he has a daughter with the same name. And when she asks if he could meet her, something changes in the chief as he stands up, strides over to the captain, and tells him, we can't let these people die. Act 5. As the planting ceremony comes to an end, Sisko and Jadzia stand firm with their decision to recreate the accident that stranded them on Gaia 200 years ago, causing Kira's death in the process. Yedrin gives Jadzia a pad of the original navigation charts to download into the Defiance autopilot, sending her to the right point in time. Before they leave, Benjamin hugs his old friend one last time. On the Defiant, Odo is adamant that Kira returns to Deep Space Nine, but Kira pleads with him, telling Odo that what she is doing is for the innocent 8,000 people who will die if she doesn't. And before they part, Odo asks that if Kira knew about his feelings years ago, would she do things differently? Kira responds only with a longing maybe and a tearful kiss goodbye. On the bridge, all is ready for launch, including a probe containing crew messages for their families to explain what happened. With the probe launched, the Defiant speeds towards the quantum barrier and the coordinates that will send them 200 years in the past. Dax activates the autopilot and all is going according to plan. Suddenly, to everyone's surprise, especially O'Brien's, the Defiant veers away from the anomaly at the last second, breaching the quantum barrier and changing history, 
as Kira's scanners show no sign of the settlement or the inhabitants. Everything is gone. Later on the Defiant, Sisko and Dax are walking down a corridor, trying to figure out what happened. Only someone who used to be a part of the crew could have bypassed the right security systems to sabotage the autopilot. Someone like Dax. Someone like Yedrin Dax. But the two old friends take comfort in the fact that the settlers will always live on, as long as they are remembered. Later, in her quarters, Odo visits with a visibly distraught Major Kira, confessing to her that he and the other Odo linked for a time. And now this Odo knows everything, for better or worse. And the one thing that Odo from the colony wanted Kira to know is that he was the one who changed the Defiance flight plan so that she wouldn't have to die. Kira raged at the Odo standing before her, who tells her that the other Odo did it simply out of love for her. And as Kira demands to know if that makes it right, Odo replies that he doesn't know, but the other Odo thought so. The end. No, Rand, I just wanted to let you know that I got a, a message from the John of the future uh, to uh, tell me, John of now, to tell you that uh, you did a good job on the recap. So, yeah, oh, thanks. I appreciate that, John of the future. And sure. John hey, the I'll let him know when I get there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I will see him. I'm traveling through time at the speed of time. So we don't yeah, have we don't. the time. <laughs> what was I saying? I love that joke with yes. Troy. And then he gave me a shot of something called tequila. <laughs> <laughs> you know that it was um it was a very it was a complex breakdown to write primarily because I don't think that I've ever had to watch a 5 minute and 24 second cold open that, before. It, so it's not the longest cold open in DS9 history but it feels that way and I'm always surprised when I'm I'm watching it and I'm I'm getting into it and then you cut to credits and I was like Wait, I, I thought we already did that. We didn't do that? We're, we're still right. in the cold open? Oh, okay, because I thought we were firmly into Act 1. Right. I, there was, I think that they probably could have cut it where, where Yedrin Dax says, we're your descendants, and they would go mm-hmm. into like the right. opening music. Right. But it was just weird that it kept going. I'm like, oh, yeah. man, this, this prologue write-up is going to be so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one, of those, it, it's one of those things with, you know... Uh, an episode that is very concept-based and plot-based as opposed to just characters going through a thing. Yes, there's a heavy character uh, element to this, and we will get into that in our discussion, but as sci-fi often does, then you marry that to that sort of very complex uh, plot situation going on here. So, I, you know, right at the top, we learned that there is no more Akira and Shakar. Aw, but, I mean, they just asked the prophets, and uh, how, how did they get an answer? And what if they disagree with the answer? Like, they both decide, like, we should go after the prophets if we should stick together. Show us a sign, prophets. Oh, oh, they told you yes? Oh, because they, they told me no. <laughs> no. No, trust me, right. really, they said no. I don't know why I didn't see this before, but it's just when you said this. And I know that we were talking shipping before in a previous mm-hmm. conversation, so I apologize to the to the listeners now if you don't get this reference. But why did we not ship these two as Shakira? Oh man! Oh come on! Yeah, right. That's so perfect. You're okay, welcome, yeah. out there, By the way, Shakira, go make it right a now. hashtag Shakira. Make it a thing. I, I it's just mm-hmm. it's right there. I How know. did we not see hey, that? We're before? only you know twenty plus years too late, but that's okay. We, we can make it a thing now. Duncan Regera's hips don't lie. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. 
And, and apparently that was part of the not not his hips, but uh, Duncan's availability schedule, <laughs> etc. That they just couldn't keep getting him back. And and Ira said at some point that he felt like by elevating him so quickly, by putting him in this relationship with Kira and making him the uh, prime minister, I, I can't remember the title exactly, by putting him into those places so fast, it's like, where do you go with that character then? Uh, yeah, first first minister, minister of the provisional government. Go. Good, good. Yeah. Put that on your business yeah. card. Right. It, it was funny to me, right at the beginning, that Cisco, it, where the guy's walking through with the coffee or the Arachtogeno, no thanks, I'm trying to cut down. I, I just, <laughs> I, okay, it, it was... <laughs> It was funny to me. First of all, I don't get it because I figure, like, look, if you've got a caffeine problem or whatever, that's probably something that Dr. Bashir could take care of right away. You know, that they got sent the hall in the future, right. you probably have a way to uh, counteract caffeine if you need to. But was that would that be synthetic? Yeah, yeah, we'll make that a thing too. It's trademark, yes. by the way. Exactly. Trademark that. But it was funny to me that stood out because it was such a 20th century thing. It was such a 20th totally. century line, and it really just kind of sounds like a joke. So I wondered if it was ad lib. Of course, you have to have that come back because that has to be something so specific that Yedrin Dax refers to. Mm-hmm. But it it sticks out like a sore thumb, not only because it's such a, uh, a sort of a colloquial thing, but then it also becomes a colloquial thing that gets turned into a plot point. So it's like it's something right. Cisco would have never said before, will never say again, but he has to say it in this episode so you can have the reference to it. Right. So that Yedrin Dax anchors mm-hmm. the scene in the future to the yeah. past. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And yeah. wow. Hey, Miles and uh, Rita uh, making a new life. I, I thought that was very interesting. And uh, I, I kind of mm. like to see the chief squirm there for a bit. <laughs> that was. Oh, he, he squirmed did. a couple times in this episode, I think. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought that having Quark in there teaching oh, math, that great. was brilliant. Also a brilliant way to add somebody in for a contractual yes, obligation. Yes. Right. Said, that's what I thought too. And it was just like, yeah, hey, if, if you're going to do it, that's the perfect way to do it. I thought it interesting that uh, that they were still calling Worf son of Moog. And because uh, I, I thought he was a Martok now. He's in the Martok family. There is no more House of Moog. But... Yeah, you know, I was thinking of that, too. And since he's the only Klingon in the mm-hmm. crash, maybe he was thinking, like, I have to preserve my family name if we're going to Good continue point. on. You know, I'm the last of the son of Moog, the sons mm-hmm. of Moog. As far as he's concerned, he was the only son of yeah. Moog. So why not continue yeah, that family we, we line? Not... I'm sorry, Klingon fans. That was a really <laughs> low blow dig. <laughs> I apologize. It was just there. Yeah. Uh, He had a great one-liner. Again, uh, is it true you can kill somebody just by looking at them? Only when I'm angry. Perfect. Perfect. That was good. Perfect Worfism right there. Uh, I was trying to do a little bit of math, you know, because uh, particularly when we're talking about the chief, uh, that's seven generations in 200 years, which I I guess works out, you know, uh, that, that... should be reasonable, you know, w- within the, the realm of reason. And they went from 48 people to 8,000 people in 200 years. And I'm going to say Worf was busy. Bashir apparently was busy. Uh, the chief and dad, they were all busy. They were all very busy uh, for those first few generations, at least. 
Well, I was maybe that's why planting day is so important. You know, maybe there's something in the soil. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, maybe that's you know, it. Yeah, that's yeah. I I always wanted to like hear something about because um, we've always done this in Star Trek where there's something in the atmosphere or in the soil or something that allowed them to uh, to to thrive and prosper and not worry about you know disease mm-hmm. or. Uh, you know, violence predators or things of that nature. Like this is like the most beautiful, bountiful planet. There's a reason why we're here. There's a reason why we have to protect this colony because by all intents and purposes, it's like this colony is like, like Wakanda. Right? Yeah. It's like the Wakanda of yeah, the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Like everything great right. happens here because you crash landed. Right. Exactly. Right. Something that like, you know, the defiant irradiated the soil or like, you know, the anti, the, 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 there was no, no such thing as uh, antimatter uh, introduced into this part of the galaxy mm-hmm. ever. So now it created like super soil or right, super atmosphere. Right. right. Something. Yeah. That's my, that's my time <laughs> talk for the day. Just add super <laughs> to everything. It works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people in the background, like the really, really, really older mm-hmm. actors, there was one guy who had fantastic yes. white hair pulled back yes, into a ponytail. Yeah. So he must have been, say, uh, in Star Trek terms, maybe he in his mm-hmm. 80s or 90s, which means like, you know, he's almost close to being what half middle age because 150 or something like that is like Mm -hmm. the human age he must have been there for maybe like say when Worf passed Mm. because you know Klingons age they live longer yeah you know so it would have been cool if like a really really old dude like with semi-Klingon features was like one of the sons of Moog like him that could have been cool all grizzled out you know yeah that would have been neat and speaking of you know like Speaking like you know, uh, revering your your elders, I do love how Cisco still calls Dax old yeah. man. Uh, it's a nice little bit of continuity, and you know, I, I didn't really even get into it. I didn't take any further notes on it. But one thing that did pop into my head was uh, this whole complex issue of, well, now you actually have two Dax symbionts, which are the same being, presumably with the same consciousness, in the same place. So it's sort of like, you know, the transporter problem. If you are creating a duplicate, which one is the quote-unquote real one? And here you've got Dax, you know, full of the same memories, full of the same experiences, but now with a new one that has diverged off of that. I mean, Kira almost has it okay that the only other version of her is in the ground. So, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't have to deal quite with that uh, uh, quandary of, uh, you know existential worry uh but speaking of kira kira i I gotta say she she's actually keeping it together pretty well for a woman who knows that she's going to die um at least one version of her uh and can go actually visit her own grave that's i i would think that that would send a lesser person or a a more uh emotionally vulnerable person right into a tailspin um yeah yeah I thought that was uh, probably something that the writers were really high-fiving themselves mm-hmm. about because, like, what about this idea? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. It's, it's, it's something that you don't see a lot of or, or maybe never yeah. see, uh, you know, in, in one of your favorite series where somebody is actually standing atop of their own grave and, and, yeah. and praying yeah. for themselves. Yeah. That was really and, – and, of course – Odo's saying, like, huh, the prophet's got to be confused yeah. on this one. That <laughs> exactly. was a nice touch, was just good. to add a little yeah. bit of levity to and the scene. I, man, I love this look on Odo. The hair, the face, right. the light. He's Odo casual now. And um, I was very interested to read that they actually just used 
the prosthetic that they had created, or they used the mold for the prosthetic when Odo was Curzon. So you remember, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So they didn't yeah, have to yeah. redesign the makeup. They just gave him that look and that, that lightened him up. And uh, it was wonderful. Yeah. And a little bit of wave in his hair. So yeah. his hair wasn't so, you know, uh, yeah. perfect, perfectly, you know, changeling, not great. solid. Such a great look on him. Yeah. Uh, and it gave him the ability to act yeah, more. Yeah, for real, for real. Um, and, oh, man, I am so, so glad that O'Brien called out Worf. You hardly ever see your son. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. So much shade. So oh, much shade. Yes. I live for that. I mean, that's like, it got tense it in that scene, you know? And, yeah, because, first of all, O'Brien's like, uh, I don't care about your gods. Your gods are your gods. You can believe whatever you want. I want to get yeah. back to my family, so don't yeah. speak for me. I thought that was so real. The chief always yeah. keeps it real when it Great comes to that scene. stuff, right? Yeah. 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 So I love good. that, too. And, you know, on kind of a contemplative note, I, I love that they had this line, they existed as long as we remember them, they always will. Made me think a bit of the end of Wrath of Khan, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to mm-hmm. frame that. And because the Trill, you know, by and large are immortal, mm-hmm. you know, if their hosts are, or can, you know, if their hosts can live on and healthily and, and host the Trill mm-hmm. symbiote, the memories of... Those eight thousand yeah. people, obviously, didn't yeah. eat all of them, but so the memories of the people that 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 Dad Zia was able to interact with will live on forever. Yeah. This episode confirms what I always suspected: that the DS Nine crew is outstanding in their field. We'll get back to Children of Time in just a moment, but first a word from Eagle Moss and the Orville Starships Collection. The Orville what? Well, I know. Wait, we're still doing Star Trek on this, right? We absolutely are. Okay. And we're just taking a small pause for, for our advertiser identification because Eagle Moss is very well known for the quality of their Starship collection for Star Trek, but now developed in partnership with Seth MacFarlane and his hit science fiction comedy drama, they are now releasing the ships, the brand new Orville official ships collection and available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Now the first ships in this collection are the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, the ECV-197, and its shuttle, the very statuesque and well-sculpted ecv 197-1 and they're available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only 29.95 each with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville available for only 74.95. No matter what you order, use code mission10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. No, wait, I have to pause here for just a second because you you actually have both. You have the small version and the large version of the Orville, correct? I do indeed. I do indeed. Yeah, and and the details are amazing, and you love them. Um, Of course, those details are great because they're based on a careful study of the models created for use in the series. So these highly detailed ships are made of die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials, then hand-painted for stunning accuracy. Each ship comes with a display base, plus a collector's magazine filled with concept art interviews and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series. And don't fret, yes, there are those three now, but additional ships are slated to join the collection soon, 
But these are the ones that you want to get right now while you can. And we are in the season, so if you're looking for that special something for that special collector in your life, this is what you should do. Check out HeroCollector.com slash The Orville because full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information can be found at that website, HeroCollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. All right, right off the top, Norman, I got to say with Children of Time, I just, I, I love a sci-fi premise like this. It, to me, it just feels sort of perfect that it's at home in a vintage pulp novel, it would be at home in TOS, and it's absolutely at home right here on DS9. It's one of those stories that just sort of is an evergreen. It fits wherever you want to park it. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, it, it means that it's malleable. It's sort of, uh, uh, it's about the ideas and isn't specifically dependent on those characters, though these characters that we've come to know and love certainly bring it to life. And listeners probably already know, since they've heard me over the years, say that I really dig a good time travel story. Uh, just if you're going to do it, make it fresh, make it unique, uh, bring human drama to it, bring some emotional drama to it, and then use that time travel trope sparingly. Don't make it a thing that you can do every week just when you feel like it. Um, so right off the bat, I feel like uh, this is a story that's starting off with a strong premise. It's really going to bring me into the ideas here. So let's talk about some of those ideas within that show. I love a good time travel story also. And I think you know, one of the things, John, that, that I struggle with with time travel episodes is the amount of time travel series that have come between when this was originally released. And I did not see this in 1997 mm -hmm. when it was originally released. So that you're competing now, or at least I'm competing now, with having seen so many time travel style shows that sometimes, uh, at least for my experience, sometimes you get a little caught in the weeds about time travel specifics. And in, in this yeah. case, we always see time travel from one fixed point in time. That would be our fixed point in time and our protagonist's fixed point in time. And that's the compass that, we're, that we are guided by. But then timelines change and narrative perspectives change. And how does that impact what we believe to be true when we're watching this episode and why? It's a case in point here. I want to talk about the, the divergence of the timelines when the Defiant crashed. So mm -hmm. when the Defiant crashed on Gaia, or Gaia, however you want to pronounce it, mm -hmm. there was no life on that planet until they crashed, then they tried to escape, then they got flung back 200 years, and then created that colony. Right. So does that mean that the life on that planet that now exists is only because of an accident? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, I will say yes to that. Yeah, that, I think that's the only way we can look at it. And then what's interesting there is that if that planet is sort of surrounded by, uh, you know, protected by this temporal distortion, is that truly having any effect on what's happening on the outside? Outside. You so know? Yeah. everything is, that's the thing is with a time travel story like this, the the emotional narrative is literally encapsulated within the sphere of this particular world. Mm -hmm. And then they leave the planet and the history has been set 
back to zero because of right. what Odo, I like how you say Odo casual because of what Odo casual did. <laughs> he is Odo casual. Yeah. But if that were the case, then, then those memories that Cisco and Dax were talking about at the end should not exist either. That is where I get caught up in the weeds with time travel stories, because if right. everything's reset, then that actual accident never happened. And they should be right. going along their merry way. But I'm glad right. that they're telling this story because I want those lives to mean something. I want those yeah. 8,000 people to live on in someone's memory because they deserve to. They lived, as far as they know, a life of real existence. They should be, in your thought, they should be going along their merry way with no memory of any of that having happened at all. Sort of a, you know, it's back to the future. They're, they're disappearing from the photograph, wiped out of, uh, of time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I, I think we have to assume that that planet, whatever, through whatever uh, mechanics of the way that, that that time distortion happens around that planet, it's sort of protected uh, in that respect. Uh, boy, wouldn't it be terrible if like a bunch of other ships keep showing up and doing the same thing and like, you know, Goldicott shows up and then 200 years later, there's a Cardassian colony, but, oh, well, we got to wipe you out because we got to leave. And then some other ship shows up and there's a bunch of Wayoons running around. <laughs> and then <laughs> Even 200 more years before. later. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of, that kind of um, you know, you make a good point of that. That's one of those types of Talos Four style warning buoys, like, please do not approach the planet, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, on, on pain of General Order 4. Yes. Right? <laughs> Stay out of here. Stay out of here. <laughs> yeah, right. The thing that this show really brings up is that there's all this relationship drama going on. You know, we, we start out with uh, the news that Kira has broken up with Shakar. And then we have Odo right away trying to hide his feelings, though, though come on, they, they all knew. Like I felt, reading the background of this episode, I felt like this was an interesting thing where um, Gary Holland had said going way back that he had assumed early on Odo reacting to the idea that uh, Kira had a relationship with Vedic Burial, um, that he was sort of pushing down his own feelings of jealousy, sadness, disappointment that he wouldn't get to have a relationship with Kira. Whereas the writer said, like, no, that wasn't really necessarily the intention. He was just having a reaction. But to Gary's point, to a lot of viewers' point, they felt like, no, there's something else going on here. And then hints of that kept dropping further out. And then when you get to Heart of Stone, when you've got a founder uh, a changeling pretending to be Kira, trapped in that stone, uh, mm -hmm. that that sort of stalagmite growing up, and he pours his guts out, but it's not her. So now, finally, there's after years, there's this kind of payoff here, and you've got future Odo, casual Odo, just coming up <laughs> and blurting it right out. Oh, I love that. I'm so sorry to laugh there, but it's so good. I love that. <laughs> no. Well, I, I wonder, like, is this a sign of emotional maturity? I mean, that, the, I think the show is basically saying that it is, that, that uh, Odo has gone through a tremendous amount of emotional growth. And is that just a sign of emotional growth, emotional maturity? Is it he feels the freedom to be able to say what's on his mind, you know, to, to just be able to be himself and let somebody know his true feelings 
as opposed to it being all wrapped up and in him not being sure of himself and not sure what the answer will be and can he actually can actually deal with a negative answer if that's what he would get. I mean, there is a little bit of a safety net here when it comes to, again, time travel stories, because it's not Odo. It's not our protagonist's timeline of Odo that we're seeing in this particular instance. It is casual Odo, who has learned from all of his experience, who has learned from the loss of Kira that it's better to have told her and suffered that than not have told her at all and suffered for 200 years. So the person that that she is seeing isn't the Odo that she knows. Yeah. So how... I guess, and I'm going to get to this a little bit later, but it's not really earned in that same sense. That emotional connection is a fantasy in a way because this Odo doesn't technically exist in her timeline if that timeline is restored. Right. So with all things, and especially let's, let's just kind of cross the fandom uh, streams here. <laughs> let's go to Jurassic Park. The way that Ian Malcolm used the rivulet of water and how it changed patterns yeah. on, on Ellie's hand is because time, like currents, don't move that way. They don't move in the exact same form or the exact same direction. Right. Neither would Odo. You know, it, it is a neither little would unfair. his choices. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a little unfair because, it, yeah, casual Odo has nothing to lose. You right. Know? He, yeah, he, he's, he's messing with somebody else's life at, at mm-hmm. that point. I do want to mention some of the other characters. You know, Bashir is just, hey, he's beside himself. Like, wow, I got, I had this relationship. We we had a bunch of uh, kids. All right, cool. Uh, but the conflict within Chief O'Brien is really interesting. Um, I think, look, Keiko became kind of a running joke, particularly on Mission Log. And I feel like with a lot of fans, too, I think maybe if we had seen more of Keiko and if we really bought into their relationship, which I don't, uh, <laughs> I would <laughs> I would buy this conflict more and I would be more sympathetic to it. In this case, the way it's played out here, I wish that the expression of that conflict was a little more thoughtful and a little more forgiving of himself because Mm. it's okay for miles to consider the possibility that he won't be with Keiko forever Mm -hmm. probably won't happen in any timeline I'm going to say but but it's okay it's okay and it's okay for him to find another woman attractive you know uh regardless of what's going on it's okay for him to have that human response you know, I, I get it. He's probably the longest consistently running relationship that we've had on DS9, if not Star Trek in general at this point. Is that for going Kirk and the Enterprise? Yeah, well, that that is a love affair that will never die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, but um, I, I just feel like it, it was a bit of a squandered moment because Keiko's always gone oh she's six months on Bajor look I know we just had a kid but she's going to be gone visiting her mother she's you know there's a lot of that that just gets thrown away and it would have had more emotional impact a little more reality if there was a little more investment in that relationship but with that said like I'm I'm glad that they approached it I just feel like there also needed to be there's a little bit of that acknowledgement from Bashir but Bashir is trying to be you know the space playboy that he is, there just needed to be a little bit of uh, a little more gentle reassurance to Chief O'Brien, like, hey, it's it, it's all right. 
it's all right that you know if we don't come out of this there is also a future for for that o'brien sure and that o'brien lineage and as a you know as the like the paternal force you know of the o'brien lineage yeah yeah sure that that's something that's obviously important to him and i think that it would have been couched nicely if if julian said that hey you know what i never had a relationship like yours i'm glad that my you know, my bloodline and my family name has lived on throughout the 200 years. Yeah. But for you, Miles, I'm like, you know, if, if Keiko was with us, it's very well possible that she also could have died on this crash landing and you would have to move on. She would want you to move on. She would want you to be happy mm-hmm. and not torture yourself by not being with her because it's not your choice. What happened to her wasn't because of what you did. Right. Or what you chose to do. And, right. you know, ostensibly that's what Dax is saying. Like, you know, these people didn't choose this life. It was yeah. my choice, my pride, that that forced these people into the situation. Yeah. Um, but but you know, talking about you know, say uh, Rita Tannenbaum or uh, the woman that Bashir uh, married. Mm-hmm. What happens now since they have all that knowledge and they're going back, leaving the planet, going back to Deep Space Nine, knowing that they do have or will have at one point in time romantic interests. Planted in their heads now yes. because of what they experienced on the planet. Yes. Right? That is... <laughs> so, yeah. like, Miles goes, Rita Tannenbaum, she's just an ensign. Well, what would I know about her? She only serves on the Defiant. Well, now it's in his head. Uh, yes. <laughs> exactly. You know, it didn't leave because they left the subspace barrier or the, uh, the quantum barrier. It's all there still. Right. And are also all of the fantasy possibilities of what could happen. Much yeah. like what he did with Kira... On the shuttle. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Right? Yeah, they, they both had the good sense to uh, say no, but this is a different thing. Now, now there's a... actually a glimpse at a relationship. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that'll mess with somebody's head. <laughs> that goes part and parcel with some of like the weeds, I say, that I've been getting caught up with with this time travel episode, is that it doesn't reset mm. the timeline. It is just a part, a blip, of right. the timeline that they still can remember. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. It just uh, look, chief, when you get back, don't mention any of this to Keiko. Okay? Just don't. As far as she knows, you went to the Gamma Quadrant, uh you looked at stuff, you came back, you're done. Uh, nothing to report there. I I do love that the uh the Klingons in this, the Klingon-ish uh people who have grown up in the last 200 years are trying so hard to be Klingon. And they look to the guy who is trying so hard to be Klingon. <laughs> There's something so charmingly misguided about That's that. So but good. but it just sort of it sort of defines who the Klingons are. Like these are people who are just constantly trying to live up to this idea of what being Klingon is, and that is a goalpost that keeps moving all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so there was something comedic yet really uh, heartfelt about it too. I love the fact that Klingon, quote unquote Klingon, on Gaia isn't just about biological enti- um, identity. It's a cultural identity now. Yes, yeah, Thought which I think is really, cool. really neat. It's mm-hmm. see, Worf is the only Klingon on the Defiant. He's the only Klingon, as far as I know, as far as we know, serving in Starfleet. Yeah. So it's his bloodline that has to move forward. It's his. Yeah. It's his heritage that has to move on, and I think that's neat that the sons of Moog. They, they, uh, they adopted whatever philosophy that he was able to pass down throughout the generations and still maintain 
either by blood or by choice, this Klingon heritage. I just I found that mm-hmm. charming just because it is something cultural that was part of that Defiance crew that crash landed. Yeah. And and, and let's be real here. Uh, there are Klingons who are part Klingon, part human, I, I guess. And then and then you've got uh, Yedrindax. So you've got somebody who is Trill but not Klingon. So definitely between Worf and Dax, who crash-landed on that planet 200 years ago, uh, there was a lot of other stuff going on other than just Klingon and Trill bloodlines mixing. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there definitely was. Remember, 8,000 people in, 2000, in 200 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it yeah. wasn't and just we, in the water. Yeah, we saw a lot of variation among them, yeah. Yeah. You know, we did mention a little bit just talking about that interesting moment with uh, uh, Casual Odo and Kira next to Kira's grave. Um, you know, she she has this interesting line where she's conflicted about using technology to change the will of the prophets. And we've talked about the problem with saying something like that before, because, again, this very thing could be the will of the prophets anyway. To like to go through this test and then use technology to get yourself out of it to mm-hmm. correct quote unquote the timeline again, like could that just be the will of the prophets as well? I mean, technology is technology. It was the first Bajoran who took an aspirin going against the will of the prophets? It, it, it's that's an impossible thing to answer. Therefore, it's sort of uh, a non sequitur to even ask it, to even pose it <laughs> at a certain point. Well, I mean, a lot of like religious philosophies that is that is a, a very like a, a prevalent um, part of the belief system is that everything has everything has transpired by the will of X, and X means your specific deity. So, if yep. God wills it, or the Prophet wills it, or everything that has led up to this moment was part of a master um, divine plan, right? Then, yes, whatever happened here on this planet was part of that master divine plan. Now, right. You add in the uh, the agnostic component to this whole equation, which is, say, like a Chief O'Brien or an Odo, mm-hmm. because they don't believe in these divine plans. So mm-hmm. it's it's plausible that, you know, uh, that someone like an Odo would change the course of Kira's fate because he doesn't believe what Kira believes. He believes what he believes. He believes that she should live. Kira yeah. believes that she should die. Right. But you just keep taking that added finitum and you just say, okay, well, Odo's opinion is the will of the prophets. And, Odo, right. you know, there's simply no way out of that line of argument because no matter what happens, you just say, well, that was the plan of the prophets. It was, the, it was their will. Can't right. argue. Yeah. That's, that's, that goes all the way back to, say, what Dan Brown is most famous for with what came first, the antimatter particle or God. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. it's, it's one can't exist without the other. One created the other or one perpetuates the other. And you're right, an ad infinitum argument that yeah. only can be, you know, uh, only can dig in your heels further depending on what side of the, you know, the uh, theological equation that you, that you stand on. Right. But it does, it does lend itself towards really good storytelling. And when it comes to technology and death, it's something that Star Trek is not a stranger to. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, like... Um, Kirk said in Star Trek 2, you know, I've cheated death. I've tricked my way out of death and I've patted myself on the back for my ingenuity. Yeah. You know, that's... Yeah. And he used technology most of the time to do that, i.e. via the Enterprise or the people that surrounded him, especially Spock. Yeah. Right? Or right. Dr. McCoy in, in varying degrees. Right. So 
it's not about, or, but then you can say like, well, you know, it's the will of the prophets. Cause I'm sure the prophets existed in those times too. That yep. the Kirk was supposed to live or it's the will of some deity that he was supposed to live. Yeah. Right? Well, it's yeah. Okay. Then look, then you've got a contrast here. You've got, um, you've got Kira telling miles. Oh God, this is, it made my skin crawl. Your family will be fine, Miles. The prophets will take care of them. And I was like, whoa, 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 Kira, yeah. you do not, you do not get to invoke your religion to tell someone that he can't see his family again or, uh, you know, sort of work through the process of, of you know, trying to uh, piece back together the life that he had. That That was... Oh, I, you know, I, I guess the best thing that I can say about that scene is it is incredible how thoughtful and uh, maybe accepting of other people's arguments they were. Because that, to me, that kind of thing, that's when chairs start flying. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that was, whew, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that probably in maybe the original series or or the next generation there could have been a you know you have a point you have mm-hmm. a point yeah, about yeah, that. right right but what i do love about it in deep space nine is that miles is like you don't get to speak for me like that yeah you know your belief systems aren't mine i respect your belief systems but you have to respect mine and what you, you just can't blanket say that oh everyone's going to be fine you yep. know uh, whoever you care about they'll be fine they'll live on you don't know that right and you can't say that because my gods believe that they will be, it's going to be so. And yeah. I love how Miles threw that back at her. He's yeah. like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I'm glad yeah. that he was able to speak his mind to an authority figure like that because he's like, you know what? In all, when it all comes down to it, I don't care about my job. I don't care about my rank. I don't care about my privilege. I care about my, my family. Mm-hmm. I care yeah. about the people that I love that need me. I'll be fine without Starfleet, but they won't be fine without me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, she does not get to make that call. All right, so uh, who's right? 49 people who want to go home or the 8,000 people who want to keep living on this planet? I mean, it's this is the ultimate expression of the trolley problem. And right. we, we've presented the trolley problem on the show before, but now, now you're really raising the stakes of the trolley problem because mm-hmm. originally the idea is, okay, you're standing at the cross switch and you can either throw the switch and that trolley will kill five people where you don't throw the switch and the trolley will kill one person. Oh, but wait, that one person is your mom or your brother or your child or whatever. Now we've just extrapolated that to this crazy extreme where it's 8,000 people who are all your great, 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 great grandchildren. This is a culture that you built, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, as opposed to your immediate crew who you're trying to get home. And, you know, let's not forget, we don't know the outcome for all those people who are still at DS9. We don't know what their futures, what their lives would be like. I'm actually kind of surprised that Cisco has less to say about this than he does because he's got this great relationship with Jake. I mean, right? he does... Yeah, he, he <laughs> you know, he's got a he's got a good moment when he's sitting there after that meeting scene just saying like, yeah, I made up my mind here's what we're doing, but I I I just I I keep waiting for something about Jake specifically <laughs> to come up here. I'm so surprised that mm-hmm. in that decision where he says that we're not going to entertain what Kira is saying, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, to 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 save your life against what your own wishes. 
But I'm surprised that there isn't something along the lines of, of, of Cisco looking at a pad. Maybe it was a story that Jake was writing that he gave to him for that long, that long trip. Yes. And he just like goes, I'm sorry, yes. Jaco, but this is the right thing to do. I know that you'd forgive me for this. Something. Yeah. yeah. Right? That yeah. says that the sacrifice that he's about to make is important. It means that the 8,000 lives aren't just this tangential uh, circumstance from a temporal effect. Right. right. These people are real. These people right. have lives. And the, the Cisco lineage was in his hands. Yes. That baby was part of his heritage, his, yes. his descendant. So he would be looking at that baby. I'm like, I'm sorry, Jake. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I just know what's going to happen in the here and now if I don't do this. Yeah. And Precisely. they never went there. And Precisely. I really wanted him to do that. Like the visitor. Yeah. I really wanted him to go there that way. Yeah. Odo didn't just become casual in a day. At one point, he was probably just casual Friday Odo. So, John, it is time to talk about the morals and meanings and messages of the children of time. And we will make the time to understand how important time is to this episode. How did this land for you? This episode, it's sci-fi soap opera at its finest, and I'm totally on board for that. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like people could use that phrase for DS9 in particular, uh, that it's sort of a soap opera. This is a, a series that spends more time building up relationships and these long character threads and arcs than the series that preceded it. So people could use that as pejorative. I, I don't think so. I, I think it adds to my attachment to these characters. It adds to my interest in their lives. So when you take a story like this and you marry a hard sci-fi concept like time travel to these human emotional concerns, I, I think you have a recipe for a successful story here. I do like that the whole question about Odo's feelings for Kira got us here because again, it's little hints that are dropped throughout earlier episodes, some intentional, some not. And then you go, okay, well, wait, what happens if we really explore that? And the way we're going to explore it is time travel. So we can take this character, accelerate him a couple hundred years and see what that does to his feelings, to his emotions. So yeah, they, they had teased it before. And I'm just, I'm glad that we let Odo have a relationship with an exceptional woman before we got to this point with Kira. If you think back to a simple investigation, which was not that long ago, we really got to grow Odo. And by doing that, it, it rounded him out a little bit more, made him less pathetic, to be honest, <laughs> to find a word for that. Because if it was just the same sort of emotionally stunted Odo then I think we would have a lot harder time buying that he would actually be able to pursue something with Kira. We're just allowing casual Odo to come in and sort of have his influence here. I said it before, I love that scene in The Defiant where the crew are making their cases to Captain Sisko about who wants to stay and who wants to go and why. There's nothing really remarkable about that scene. It's a very, like, a TNG thing. People sitting around the table talking about their opinions, their their feelings on this. But 
it's just so right. Just hearing these people say what they need to, seeing Benjamin weigh it out, and then hearing his decision as the commander. It's just a solid, great scene. And in this episode, Renee, we've said, is just freaking marvelous. He's so yeah. good in it. So, yeah, it, this is one of the... I, I, you know, I would honestly say this episode might stay within the top five or top ten of DS9 for me. It works so well as a standalone, but it also works so well as an episode that pays off a lot of the relationships we've built with these characters up until now. So it works on both of those levels. And again, it's just that perfect combination for me of hard sci-fi meeting the human element, the emotional element. Uh, so I, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. What about you? So do you remember that scene where Akira gets hit by the energy pulse? How, how and... could I forget? Well, the thing that we're missing is right. a Chekhov scream. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and she turns into ter two versions of a quantum state. Yeah. I'm the other version of the quantum mm, state. Okay. John. All right. Talk to me. And, and, not, and, and not negatively so, uh -huh. but there are times when I think that, um, that, that time travel stories do a fantastic job for the most part, and I think that this is one of those times. But because one of my favorite fandoms in the world is a time travel fandom, that's Doctor Who, mm -hmm. and I've been watching it, since the late 1970s with John Pertwee and Tom Baker. Mm -hmm. And then one of my all-time favorite television shows that a lot of people have probably never watched before, but it's a Canadian show called Continuum starring Rachel Nichols. Mm. A fabulous, fabulous time travel show. Time travel stories for me, I always end up probably unfairly nitpicking pretty hard. Mm, okay. yeah. and, it, and it comes to the butterfly effects. It comes to the butterfly effects of the story. And in this case, all of the different ways that chaos theory can apply itself to not being able to rectify temporal mechanics. Right. And in this case, it's what the, the, the information that, say, Bashir has for future relationships, how Miles now feels about this ensign, how Odo has given, how casual Odo has given formal Odo. Yeah. All of this information that will affect his present and therefore his future. That will not change. And now Odo, formal Odo, knows everything about how casual Odo has felt and what has done with those feelings for over 200 years. Yeah. How do you, how do you separate yourself from that? And being a changeling, he linked with him. It's not like he wrote it down in yeah. a diary. Yeah. His whole emotional being has been transferred into Odo in a way that casual Odo now lives in a part of formal Odo. Yeah. So everything that he does now in his relationship with Kira is now informed by what casual Odo has taught him to do, has warned him to do. Yeah. And that in and of itself affects the timeline. Yeah, it does. It absolutely like, does. Yeah, it's essentially I hate to say it and I hate to I hate to be as as um, as crass about mm -hmm. it as the sports almanac from Back to the Future. But it's literally casual Odo was Biff. The sports almanac was linking with young Biff. Right. And it was young Biff altering the future timeline based on what he knew to bet on. Right. That is what's happening here in the most um, vulgar way of interpreting 
that part of the narrative. It, it is. Now, we're, we're glad that uh, Odo has a sense of morality and justice that Biff definitely does not. True. <laughs> you know? well, true. That's why I say it's vulgar. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of, I, I don't want to jump ahead. Well, here, you, you finish your thoughts because I, I, I'm going to pick up on that for the morals, meanings, messages. Well, I mean, that's just what I pick up on. And that's, like I said, in, in time travel stories, mm. it's not necessarily the main story, of which I think is beautifully told and beautifully acted, especially by Renee's part in it as Casual Odo. By the way, um, Casual Odo and Gui Bashir got to have some kind of, you know, like buddy cop comedy. That's, yeah, we're, right? we're a band, like a, like a cartoon band from a, an early 70s Saturday morning cartoon. Like, that just sounds so right. Yeah. There are a lot of creative people out yeah. there. Do us a favor. See what you can come, yeah, up, come up with. Exactly. That's already been trademarked. <laughs> <laughs> Call us for the license. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I, I sometimes I said, uh, and it's my own fault. I'll, I'll own up to it. I'll be the first person to critique myself for it. But I do kind of hold time travel episodes to um, a, a fairly uh, critical threshold. Yeah. Not in that way. Not in that threshold way, people. <laughs> not that threshold. <laughs> You know, but it's like I was—I was pretty harsh about um, uh, trials and tribulations. Yes, you sure were. Yeah, for good reason. Because yeah. of the of the Klingon timeline mm-hmm. issue. So, as much as I love this episode a lot, those are the things that it still stick with me because I want to know what's going to happen with with that that forbearance of the future. Yeah. Well, so here's what I'm going to do. I I. I fully uh, appreciate and respect where you're coming from with the downside of this kind of timeline meddling. I I get where you're coming from. Um, I'm going to go a little different direction for the morals, meanings, messages. Because I'm going to take it back to this idea that uh, we have said on Mission Log before, which is, okay, these things aren't real. Can't actually travel in time. Can't actually, you know, give warning to somebody to then change the timeline and change their future. So what actually is the value in telling a story like this? You know, because... Mm -hmm. That story is being told by contemporary people to a contemporary audience to hopefully land emotionally, philosophically for them to to think and to contemplate something. And there's a great thread in this episode with all the relationship stuff that's going on. We, we get to see, you know, the chief's sort of unease and guilt. <laughs> we get to see, you know, how people have carried on, how, how people have uh, passed along their heritage to their children and then their children and their children. I'm going to give Odo some credit here for his honesty because it took him 200 years to get to the point of this casual Odo that we meet. And here's what a story like this does, or any sort of time travel story like this. It it fulfills this fantasy that our older selves can go back and give our younger selves some advice. Now, it's a fantasy because obviously in reality, we can't do that. You can't take, you know, 50-year-old you and go back and tell 12-year-old you to do this thing or not do this thing, and then you'll live a better, happier life. That part of it is impossible. But what it does is it serves as a bit of a wake-up, I think, at its best. It serves as a bit of a wake-up to the present-day you who can tell present-day you to maybe, in the case of this story, be a little more honest with your emotions. 
or pursue that thing that you think was impossible to pursue anyway, because it might actually just work out in your favor and might actually be better than you had expected it to turn out to be. So I think that's really what we're looking at in a story like this is, you know, what is that actionable thing? What is that relatable present day thing that you can go like, all right, well, the me of the future didn't get around to going back to the me in the past, but there's a me right now who can do something, who who can actually, even just one step in a different direction, one shred of courage to do that thing that I didn't think I could do, what happens if I actually do it? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Odo is trying to tell Odo, casual Odo telling formal Odo. It's like, just take that one little bit of a, a step just muster up that one little bit of courage to actually be honest with yourself about your feelings and your feelings for Kira. Casual Odo doesn't know how it'll turn out because that's the timeline that didn't ever happen. That's the timeline that never played out. So maybe Odo would get rejected, but maybe Odo will learn from that because Odo at least has come from another semi-relationship that made him grow as well. So there's another opportunity for growth for, for him, you know? I will say there's another, it's a small moment in this episode, but I love, love, love that moment of Worf telling the three Klingon wannabes, time is their enemy. We should help them defeat it. It's beautiful, beautiful line. It was such a beautiful line, and it was such a great moment because here are these Klingon-ish people who have been so focused, bragging about, well, we've never grown our own food. We kill our own food, and we're trying to live this ultra-fundamentalist uh, Klingon version that, that we've been handed down for the last eight generations. We think this is what it means to be Klingon. And here's Worf coming in and giving that correction, saying, no, the, the more important point is that you're a participating member of the society that you live in. And here's how we're going to do it now. We get to treat time as the enemy. The enemy isn't this thing that's out there. It's not another Yar Bear or... Yeah, whatever it was that he killed, <laughs> you know. But I thought that was such a fantastic, almost overlooked line. And mm-hmm. it was gorgeous. And then there's a big, big question here hanging over this whole episode. Do the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many? Because that's Odo's logic. Mm-hmm. And it is the complete opposite of everything that we have learned up until now in Star Trek. It would be very hard for me to just say he's wrong because there's a lot of other complicating factors here. We don't know about the needs of the many who live outside of this planet on DS9 and all the people that they interact with and the vulnerabilities that they have and the abilities that they have and everything that's happening in the Alpha Quadrant, there's a whole lot of the many there who also need attention, who also have needs. But in this case, Odo is thinking very locally. And I don't know. I Look, I, I, don't, I don't think this episode could or should be summed up just by saying, there was a right decision and that decision was made or that decision was not made. 
I think that gives this episode a little too short shrift. Yes. It's it is made to let us contemplate this idea. But that's the message that Odo is living by here. <laughs> and I guess we'll get to see if a message like that crops up again in Star Trek. Uh, what about you, Norman? What about other morals, meanings, messages that we're left with? So just to put this on the record, John and I don't... We don't discuss our notes with each other, and we we add our notes um, not really simultaneously into into our production uh, into our, our production notes um, report here. And I, I find it fascinating that both he and I brought up the the Vulcan philosophy of the needs of the many <laughs> outweigh the needs of the few or the one, and then reversed it in this case because yes. it's so true um, to what I saw uh, and yeah. and what I took away from this. And I landed, like John, I, I landed on the very same thing. The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the few or the many. Does the logic work in this episode? Kira's life for 8,000 or the 8,000 lives for 48? Who has the right to make that choice? Who has the right to dictate what happens to these lives? And I think that that question was truly and wonderfully captured in that scene on The Defiant. It's my favorite scene in this episode where... Cisco is listening to Dax and the chief and Bashir and Worf and Kira about her choice yeah. and how her faith and how belief system is the will of the prophets. That's the center of this episode. Like whose will is the right will, right? Whose decision is the right decision. And I do want to reiterate this fact. I love how Miles speaks for pragmatism yeah. in yeah. this episode about not beholding to Kira's need to fulfill the will of the prophets or to any religious belief. Right. That's, I think that was important for them to have represented in this particular situation because not everyone is faith-based, mm -hmm. you know, and some people are family-based, yeah. like Miles. I mean, I think that, you know, he, it's, it was a hard uh, line of, uh, a, a line or set of dialogue when, when O'Brien says, I don't know these people, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> right. but I have a wife and kids back home who need right. me. And Kara said, your family will be fine, Miles. Like you said before, John, the prophets will take care of them. Yeah, it's egregious. And yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and O'Brien says, no offense, but I don't believe in your prophets. And, yeah. and again, by no offense, meaning that um, kind of F off. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. how, how dare you slight my family with such triviality yeah. in your tone? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I guess the question that from Odo's logic, the question I come away with is ultimately, it's who's ever in charge that gets to dictate the value of lives. And I hate to say it mm -hmm. that way, but that's the way I took it from this episode. And in this case, to a small degree, it's Cisco, because no matter how many stories or how many explanations he listened to in the Defiance mess hall, it's his decision ultimately that has to be carried out. Yeah. Right? And I think that Eve, they even kind of treated it a little too cavalierly for my taste when he says, I'm just here when I have to say, but it doesn't matter because I already made my decision. Yeah. Right? I agree. Mm -hmm. there, I don't think that there was enough, at least in, in direction, enough intent on Cisco really weighing out the odds or really weighing out what this means for him and Jake. I, I think that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. But for the larger part, it's Odo because Odo and the founders, for the most part, in Deep Space Nine have been identified in this universe as gods. The 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 Jem'Hadar see them that way. The you know the um the founders. And the Dominions see them that way, or the, um, the Vortar. Mm -hmm. 
And Odo did, in fact, act like a god by making this decision for everyone, especially for Kira, by changing the flight path of the Defiant. He didn't ask anyone's permission. Mm -hmm. He just did it, thereby saving her and changing history. And ultimately, gods are selfish beings. I mean, let's take in part the, the tradition of the Greek gods. They are selfish beings using mortals to fulfill their every whim. Yeah. That, is, that is mythologically, historically, a thing. So, and we've seen this time and again in Star Trek. Okay, let's go back to Apollo in Who Mourns for Adonais. The adulation of mortals in order to fill their, their, um, their vessels for power and their ability to be able to use that power to become gods. Yeah. They need that adulation, right? Mm -hmm. Q is the same way. <laughs> right. Q's so bored out of his mind that he needs to play with mortals in order just to be entertained, to find some meaning in his yeah. life. Now, I'm not saying this is the case for Ordo, but, but now the founders and the changelings in Deep Space Nine in this narrative we're talking about are gods. So in the end, Kira chooses to sacrifice herself. And Miles... He wants to do the right thing after he had that, that revelation with future Molly. And Dax wants to save the colony. And all these choices were ignored by who essentially was the decision of a selfish god. Casual Odo, the selfish Casual god. Casual Odo, the selfish god. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Blaze of Glory. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Casual Odo implies the existence of business Casual Odo and Formal Odo. Transmission Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network